When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. No people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Welcome to a Thursday edition of the Fenway Rundown. I'm your co-host, Sean McAdam. Chris Cotillo is still slacking, still doing last-minute Christmas shopping. I hope he gets me something nice, but I'm not counting on it. He will be back in this chair next week when I am gone and taking a little bit of time myself for the Christmas holiday. Uh, But today, we're going to have a mailbag edition of the Fenway Rundown, and we're getting our questions from people who are subscribers to our Insider Text Program. You've heard us talk about it on the podcast. We talk about it every episode. We think it's a terrific opportunity if you're a Red Sox fan to get current and be up to date on all the Red Sox news, not just this offseason, but in spring training and next regular season too. We will text our response to your questions and comments directly to your tablet, your phone, or your laptop. That's me, Chris Cotillo, and Chris Chris Smith. And all you have to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257. That gives you a 14-day free trial period, and after that, it's $4.99 a month. It'll give you an opportunity to ask questions on the podcast, and as we said, keep current on all the Red Sox news. Okay, as mentioned, it is a uh, Thursday edition of the Fenway Rundown, and we're pleased to have with us as a guest and I guess fill-in co-host while Chris Cotillo takes some time off. Lauren Campbell is with us, and Lauren's going to read some questions from the Insider Text page that our subscribers have left us over the last couple of days. Good morning, Lauren, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get this going. Uh, For those who don't know, Lauren is a terrific addition to our Mass Live staff, covers the Bruins, also uh, is a contributor to both podcasts, both this one and the Patriots one, which you should be aware of. Eye on Foxborough, if you haven't given that Uh, A listen, do so with Chris Mason, Mark Daniels, and Karen Garigian, and some help from Lauren. So uh, with that, Lauren, why don't we get to the mailbag and see what's on the Insider Text page from questions that we've solicited. Yeah, so this question is from Rick Mashihi, and he says, I know that Yamamoto is holding up the pitching moves for all involved, but why aren't the Red Sox working to get second base resolved? It seems that move would not be related to the pitching stalemate. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think the answer is that um, Craig Breslow at the winter meetings acknowledged that a lot of other stuff is going to have to go on the back burner. I think a lot of it is, 
um, you know, the pursuit of Yamamoto is a time consuming issue. Um, you want to see what's available in your budget. You want to know, are you committing to him or not before you start thinking about um, what might be done at other positions. And I think that in general, starting pitching is driving this free agent and trade market for that matter, so that not a lot is getting done until the big guys, by whom I mean uh, not only Yamamoto, but Blake Snell, and then to a lesser degree, guys like Jordan Montgomery, who the Red Sox also have some interest in, until they decide where they're going. It just does seem everything's on hold. It, it would seem that, uh, you know, you could walk and chew gum at the same time, right? You could pursue two different position needs, starting pitching and second base without one bleeding into the other. But they've decided to, for whatever reason, and I suspect some of it is what I just talked about, um, they've put that on hold with the belief that those second base options are still going to be there when Yamamoto decides. This is from Daniel. It kind of goes along with this. He asked if Montgomery is still a good fit for the Sox as a guy who induces a lot of ground balls, if they don't make a real defensive improvement at second. Yeah, that's one of the issues as they look to upgrade the pitching, certainly, because as we know, defense was an issue last year, particularly at the corners of the infield with Devers at third and Casas at first. Um, you look at some of the batted ball charts and some of the FIP, which measures um, what sort of impact the defense behind the pitcher has on a team's outcome, and that's certainly worrisome for the Red Sox, but they believe that with some additional time and spring training that both Casas and Devers can get better. Um, I, they also believe that having Trevor Story at short from the start of the year, which they didn't have the luxury of having last year, you'll remember he missed the first four and a half months. Having Story in the middle of the infield is going to improve uh, the entire infield defense. I think Casas can get better. I think Devers could get a little better. I just think at this point, Devers is who he is. If he's closer to the 2022 Raphael Devers, who was close to league average than he was last year, then that will be an improvement. But it's certainly a consideration as they start thinking about what pitching moves they're going to make and the impact that some porous infield defense could have on those guys. A lot of people are curious about second base as a whole. Scott Pratt wants to know if the Red Sox are aggressively looking for a second base upgrade, and if so, who would be some good options? Yeah, we've talked about this, Scott, a little bit. The free agent market is not very good. Whit Merrifield is probably the best of a mediocre lot among the free agents, but there are a couple of targets that they could make trades for. Brandon Drury with the Angels is one. We know they've had some interest in him in the past. Uh, Polanco with the Twins is another option. They're looking to shed some payroll and have said that they might make him available. And third is Jonathan India, who a couple of years ago was the National League Rookie of the Year with the Reds. They are open to moving him. And for the record, uh, Craig Breslow said during the winter meetings that he anticipated it was more likely that the Red Sox fill their second base needs via trade rather than free agency. So um, I, I would expect that Merrifield is 
down the list of considerable number of options they have, and it's more likely they make a trade when they do address the second base situation. So then we have somebody, um, someone, something from Doug Radcliffe. He asked if the Red Sox are really interested in Domingo Ormond. You know, that, uh, that rumor spread a couple of weeks ago. We were told by somebody with definite knowledge of the Red Sox plans that that was completely misguided, that uh, the Red Sox are not interested in Herman. Um, you'll recall that uh, he went into the player recovery program last year after uh, acknowledging that he had some uh, substance issues um so not sure about his readiness he also had a pretty lengthy uh suspension for violating MLB's uh domestic abuse laws and uh prohibitions so uh there's a there's a lot surrounding Herman and I can't believe that the Red Sox would be overlooking those two issues certainly they need pitching but I don't think they're desperate enough to bring in somebody that would bring them so much PR backlash. And as we noted, we were told that there was nothing to that. I have heard nothing to uh, to convince me otherwise. Sticking with the pitching still, Irene Haley is curious about pitching coaches and the programs and how different the pitching programs are among MLB teams. Mainly she's wondering how much of a competitive advantage, if it is one at all, for the Red Sox to have Breslow, Bailey, and she said might not be the right name, but Williams, the newest guy from Minnesota. Yeah, it's actually uh, Willman uh, that she's talking about, uh, who was brought in to be the director of, uh, excuse me, Willard, uh, to, to um, uh, be brought in and run the director of pitching position. Um I think Andrew Bailey is a significant competitive edge. The very fact that there were a half dozen teams interested in hiring him when he was a free agent after deciding not to go back to San Francisco. Um, he's a respected guy. And the fact that he has a long and close relationship with Craig Breslow indicates that they're on the same page philosophically um, and that this is something that could work to the Red Sox advantage. When you look at some of the impact Bailey had with the Giants, uh, bringing along some of their pitchers, uh, getting some career years out of some veteran starters, I think there's reason for optimism. Ultimately, you succeed or fail based on your personnel. But um, in cases like this, I think a good pitching coach can have an impact. And that's what the Red Sox are expecting from Bailey. And Matt Ferry is wondering if the Red Sox are targeting 2025 as the first year that they'll be competitive again because three or four of their young stars should be ready by then and maybe they'll trade for an ace at this year's deadline. Uh, that's certainly possible that they're going to have an influx of some of their top prospects ready for 2025. You're correct there. I think the expectation is that Meyer and Teal and Anthony all could be ready to contribute by the start of 2025. That doesn't rule out them perhaps being factors in the second half of 24. I think that's particularly uh, the case with Meyer, who, who missed time last year with a shoulder injury. But if he can uh, demonstrate that he's healthy, I could see him uh, perhaps seeing some time in the second half of 24. But you're right, 25 is the, is the year where they expect a lot of internal help. But 
I have to point to the uh, public statements made by members of the Red Sox from Breslow at his press conference announcing his hiring. And subsequent to that, Tom Warner talking about going full throttle this winter. That would indicate, and I would think that the Red Sox understand how important it is to be competitive again in 2024 and not wait another year. This is a team that finished last in each of the last two seasons and three times in the last four. I don't think you can sell people on just be patient in another year will be good. I think they understand that the fans have an expectation for them to be competitive next year. They haven't done much to address that this winter, obviously, but there's still time. And I do think there is more of a sense of urgency to get back into contention for 2024 rather than waiting until 25. And even though the Red Sox haven't quite yet gone full throttle in this offseason, uh, David Lee wants to know, even though some of this is waiting on Yamamoto to make his decision, why haven't the Red Sox gone ahead and just go get another starter while they can? Well, a um, couple of reasons for that. Uh, on the free agent market, I think that they uh, do like Montgomery. That was asked earlier. He certainly is still a target of theirs. The fact that his wife is going to be working in Boston for the foreseeable future would seem to be at least some edge or a factor anyway in their recruitment of him. Um, I don't think that they're particularly focused on Blake Snell, who's probably the best free agent starting pitcher among the North American free agents, in part because he's got some compensation attached that would cost them a draft pick. And by all accounts, Snell has said he would prefer to pitch on the West Coast. So that might be kind of a dead end for them. Uh, as far as the trades, there are guys out there, whether it be Corbin Burns or Dylan Cease or Shane Bieber. We know that Tyler Glasnow has already come off the market and been traded to the Dodgers. We had heard earlier in the winter that the Red Sox were not interested in trading for rentals, that is, uh, pitchers who only have a year or two before qualifying for free agency. But lately, uh, there's been a little chatter about them kicking the tires on Burns with the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, maybe that has changed. Maybe their philosophy has changed. Um, so I think there are some efforts to explore other avenues. It just hasn't yielded anything yet. And as we noted at the top of the show, we suspect that a lot of that is being held up by the uncertainty surrounding Yamamoto. Once he signs, whether it's here, however unlikely that seems right now, or elsewhere, I think you'll see a lot of pitcher movement, whether it be Snell and Montgomery on the free agents or some of those rentals being traded. Another pitcher out there, while not quite an ace, James Paxton is still a free agent, and Michael F. wants to know what a contract would look like for, for Paxton. Yeah, I would think that um, it would have to be something short-term, uh, given Paxton's age and injury history. He clearly kind of hit the wall uh, after the All-Star break last year, after pitching very well and probably serving as their best starter in the first half uh, when he was cleared to return to the rotation. Uh, I would think that that is kind of a back pocket move for the Red Sox, that, um, that they would see Paxton as more of a back of the rotation contributor, given the uncertainty that surrounds him. But uh, they clearly enjoyed having him. I think he liked it here. I based that on the fact that he picked up what was a very minimal option to return for 2023. So I wouldn't rule that out as a depth move. 
but clearly the Red Sox need to uh, improve the rotation far beyond what they had a year ago when Paxton was part of it. And Bill Crawford, he said the other AL division teams have improved this offseason. And what would be your best guess at the next time the Red Sox might make the postseason? Well, certainly the Yankees have gotten better by acquiring Juan Soto. That's the lefty bat that they needed. They also acquired Alex Verdugo, of course, a lesser acquisition, but another proven left-handed hitting major league outfielder. Um, but I think the Yankees still have some holes. And frankly, I don't see a lot of improvement on the part of the other AL East teams, at least not yet. The Rays, you could argue, took a step backward. They may have gotten a couple of good prospects from the Dodgers, but they had to give up a very good pitcher in glass now to do so. So they've taken maybe a small step backward. The Orioles really haven't done a whole lot, and neither have the Blue Jays. So uh, despite the fact that they were in on Otani and um, and are making some noise about doing some other things uh, to improve their offense, their starting pitching is already pretty good. So I guess I would take a little issue with the fact that everybody in the division has gotten better. I'd say that's really only true of the Yankees so far in terms of how soon could the Red Sox return to the postseason? A lot of that is going to be determined in the next, uh, let's call it, month to five weeks and see what they do here to bolster the rotation. I think the lineup's pretty good. I think the bullpen is really good, or, or at least has the potential to do so, but it's all about going out and acquiring one way or the other, whether it's trade or free agency, two experienced guys in the rotation who can lift what is easily the biggest weakness on that roster right now. So if they make the right moves in the next month or so, they could certainly return next year. Uh, if not, um, I, I think that there's really going to be a, a, a drop-off in terms of fan support here. We've seen uh, attendance come down at least a little. We've seen Nesson ratings go down considerably over the last couple of years. And I don't think this franchise can afford the potential for a third straight last place finish. I still think they're going to make moves. They haven't done them yet. When they do, we'll get a little better sense of how close to getting back to October baseball they're going to be. This one's a would you rather from Jeff. He says, would you spend money on a second baseman or an additional power eight power eighth bat if you had to prioritize? Um. I, I don't see where they could necessarily fit another bat in, given what they've talked about with their priorities. Yes, they could use a right-handed bat uh, to DH. Uh, they've talked about the need to provide some right-handed balance in that lineup uh, to offset all the lefties. Think about it. You've got, you know, even with Verdugo gone, you've got Yoshida as an everyday lefty bat, more or less. Casas as an everyday lefty bat. Uh, Devers, obviously. Um, the potential for Jaron Duran to be an everyday player. So they need some right-handed pop. But I think in a in a perfect world, that would come at second base. 
because they're on record as saying they don't envision having kind of an everyday DH the way they kind of did last year with Justin Turner and obviously the way they did for years and years with J.D. Martinez and before him, David Ortiz. Uh, they said they would rather have some flexibility to cycle different guys through there, get some rest, get some guys off their feet, enable Devers and Casas and Yoshida to take turn uh, filling in some of those DH at bats. So the notion that they're going to go out and get Teoscar Hernandez or Jorge uh, Soler to be their everyday DH. I, I don't see that as much of a possibility. So I think it's far more likely, and I think what they're doing is uh, marshalling any of that money or trade capital to get somebody at second who hap happens to hit right-handed. And if you get a guy like Drury, while he might not be a classic run producer, he's a guy that as recently as a couple of years ago hit 28 home runs. I don't know that that's a bat that you would fit in between Devers and Casas necessarily, but he would deepen the lineup and give you one more right-handed hitter in that mix. Sticking with the offense, Thomas Howland wants to know what the realistic offensive expectations are for Devers in 2024. Yeah, I would expect that, um, you know, I, I think in many respects, while, you know, 33 homers and 100 RBI is not a down year uh, for anybody, Devers included, I think there is a feeling that his ceiling remains higher, that he could be a guy who could hit 40 home runs and uh, and add to his doubles total and be a little more selective and get on base more. Um, we know that he's an aggressive hitter who uh, has the ability to put a lot of pitches in play, but you'd like to see maybe the selectivity improve and the strikeouts to cut down. I think that uh, that potential to improve is still there. I don't think we've seen the best of Raphael Devers, and I would expect that he's going to have a year in 2024 that will be more like 21 and 22 than he was in 23. And I say that both offensively and defensively. And Frank is curious um, on your thoughts where Bobby Delbeck, what his spot is on this team come 2024. Yeah, I was a little surprised that Alex Cora um, kind of went out of his way to say that he envisioned Dahlbeck as a guy who could make the roster out of camp. Uh, with the ability to play both corner infield positions, first and third. He also can contribute at least a little bit in the outfield. They certainly wouldn't want to have him in center and right in Fenway with all the ground to cover, but he could probably handle left field if needed. The problem is um, is that Dahlbeck uh, has not been able to be the guy who can consistently produce against major league pitching. Yes, he hit a ton at AAA at Worcester. He hit tape measure shots. He hit a home run that struck a moving train. We've all seen the highlights at AAA, but he remains the very definition of a 4A guy. Too good for AAA, but not quite good enough for the big leagues. And while that defensive versatility that he brings at the corner infield spots and the outfield um, is appealing, you would think that they recognize that there's kind of a uh, decline uh, in what they can expect offensively from him. If he can't solve all his 
contact issues at AAA. I'm not sure why they would believe that they would get any better at the big leagues. Now, who knows? Maybe he's done some things this offseason. Maybe he comes in and has a strong spring training and earns one of those bench spots. But I, I think I I share the belief of a lot of other people that Dahlbeck is a guy who probably would benefit from a change of scenery at this point. Who on this current roster, Daryl wants to know, would you say is due for the biggest jump this season? Um, hmm, good question. We're, we're going to see some younger players, certainly, like uh, Abreu and perhaps eventually Rafaela get more playing time and the opportunity is there for them to be more impact guys. But I'm going to go with Trevor Story, um, who obviously had a very disappointing two months at the plate after coming back from uh, shoulder surgery. And it's logical to assume that many of his struggles were related to not seeing a lot of live pitching and getting used to, uh, you know, the repaired shoulder and getting his timing down and being quick enough to catch up to fastballs. Uh, I, I thought Story played exceptionally well at shortstop. And if they get that kind of defense at short, as we noted earlier, then the infield defense will improve um, across the board. But I also think he can be a guy that can hit, you know, 260 to 270 and hit 30 home runs and a bunch of doubles at Fenway. So in terms of what they got last year compared to what they might be able to get this year, I'm going to say Trevor Story is the guy that takes the biggest step forward. I'm going to shift to the West Coast now and the Dodgers about Otani and his contract with the opt-out. Uh, Brad wants to know, what is your take on Otani's opt-out if Walter and Friedman are no longer with the Dodgers? If there's any plausible scenarios for that opt-out and where is the leverage? Like who has the leverage in that situation? Yeah, well, certainly um, Otani put in some kind of poison pills, if you will, into that contract. And if there are any changes with the ownership or the chief baseball officer, which is uh, Andrew Friedman, as you noted, um, then he does, he, he gets an opt-out. It's funny, uh, you asked who has the leverage there, and I would say, at first, you would say Otani does, because uh, if there are any changes, he gets to go back out on the market and auction himself anew. But there's probably a little leverage for Andrew Friedman, not that I think he's in any danger of losing his job. He's been able, even though they've only won one World Series on his watch, they have consistently finished first, often won 100 games, and they probably have been the best team in baseball, uh, or certainly the best team in the National League over the last seven or eight years that Friedman has been there. Um, so he himself has got some job security there because ownership knows if they make a change for whatever reason, uh, that could end up costing them the services of Otani. We know the Dodgers can obviously make their pitches to specific players, and it's a desirable location. Chris Jones is curious because Breslow's never you know, led or significantly participated in free agent negotiations at this level, and he knows that the money matters. But what do we know of Breslow's ability to sell Boston and kind of separate them from the New Yorks, the LAs, and the bigger, the other bigger markets out there? Yeah, good question. And it's certainly a new thing that Breslow is getting exposed to. I think he was, uh, particularly in the last couple of years with the Cubs, more involved 
with some front office moves and contributed to them uh, trying to recruit free agents and being involved in trade discussions at the winter meetings and so forth. But this is the first time he has run the show. It's the first time he's been the guy calling the shots. And there's going to be a learning curve there. There's no question, um, which has um, naturally led to questions about him perhaps bringing in a more experienced older general manager to be his right-hand man, maybe walk him through a lot of that stuff. That hasn't happened yet. We'll see what happens. Um, I think Breslow does have this advantage that he can tell prospective free agents that he played here on two different occasions from uh, in the 2006 year and then another uh, three or four year stint in the bullpen later in his career. Um, he's been around, he's pitched for eight or nine teams in his playing career. So he has some measure of comparison and being able to put that in context, you would think he'd be able to sell, uh, prospective free agents on the appeals of playing in Boston, on, uh, the appeal of playing at Fenway, what it's like to play for a successful Red Sox team and how fan support can really galvanize a good Red Sox team. So I think he'll be utilizing all those tools as he attempts to lure some free agents here, how good he's going to be and how successful he's going to be at that right off the bat. Uh, who can say, but those are all things that he can rely on to help um, aid his case. Chris Connor is curious because Miami won't extend Jazz Chisholm's contract if there's any if there's any likelihood of a scenario that's built around acquiring him and a starting pitcher. I, I think there's certainly some um, matchups pitching wise with the Marlins that make some sense. Uh, Lazardo, Rogers, Cabrera are all names that we've heard linked to the Red Sox in the past. It would not surprise me if those talks um, intensified, but um, I don't see Jazz Chisholm being much of a fit here. He has played both center field and shortstop. The Red Sox are set um, at shortstop for the foreseeable future with Story having uh, four years left on his deal. And then you've got Meyer behind him to provide some alternatives. And in terms of uh, center field, um, you've also got a lot of options there, whether it be Duran or Abreu or O'Neill or Rafaela. So uh, Chisholm's a talented guy. He's a dynamic player and very athletic. Uh, but I think the Marlins would like to build around him. And frankly, um, as talented as he is, the Red Sox have other needs than the ones he would fill. You have a couple more here. This one's from PW. He said, would you consider signing Justin Turner or Reese Hoskins? Again, I think that goes back to what they, how they envision the DH role. They have said that they would prefer not to have an everyday guy. It's hard to see how either of those guys would fit in here. Um, you know, both Turner and Hoskins could contribute at first base and be right-handed bats and alternatives to Casas, but you want Tristan Casas in there for the vast majority of games in the lineup. Sure, it'd be nice to sit him against some tough lefties once in a while, but that would lock you into having either one of those guys be your everyday DH. So I, I don't see either one of those guys being particularly good fits right now. And then Paul wants to know if the hitting coach the Sox just acquired is well-regarded in the industry. 
Yeah, Dylan Lawson is a guy that they just hired earlier in the week to be their upper-level minor league hitting coordinator. He's going to mostly uh, focus in on the rosters at Portland AA and AAA Worcester. And there's a lot of very intriguing offensive prospects there, hitters, position players, guys like we talked about earlier, Kyle Teal, uh, Roman Anthony, and Marcelo Meyer. Those are the three top-rated prospects in the system, and Lawson's going to have a big impact on finishing their development at the minor league level. He was a guy that was fired last July by the Yankees as their major league hitting coach um, because they weren't getting the results that they wanted. He was the first in-season coach firing that Brian Cashman has made in better than 25 years at the helm. So that raised a few eyebrows. But it should be noted that the Yankees didn't get much better offensively when Sean Casey came in uh, for the second half of the season and Casey elected not to return. So they're going in another direction still. I think Lawson's a guy that's highly regarded, even if it didn't work out at the big league level with the Yankees last year. I know the Red Sox are pretty excited to have him in the fold. And this last one is from Alec V. He, You mentioned the, the ratings are down, the attendance has been down at Fenway Park, and he wants to know, if fans are going to be happy again with John Henry as the owner, what does he have to do to get these fans back to being happy again? Spend money. It's that simple. It's the ability to be aggressive, to green light uh, major acquisitions, whether they be a free agent signing like Yamamoto or Montgomery or somebody else that interests them as a free agent or green lighting the acquisition of a player with a big salary in a trade. Uh, the Red Sox have, for most of John Henry's ownership, been among the top spending teams in the game. Uh, they have frequently gone over the CBT. They have, in the past, shown little regard for worrying about how much they're spending if they were putting a competitive team on the field with a chance to win a World Series. But the last couple of years, that seems to have been reversed. And what we need to know and need to see from John Henry is whether that was a blip and something of uh, an anachronism or whether they're going to return to being a big market team in terms of their approach to spending. Ask me that same question on February 1st, and I'll probably have a much better answer and more definitive one for you. And that is, that is all the questions we got through all of those. Um, a lot of good ones. A lot of people are very curious about second base and, and pitching for sure. Yep. Those are the two focuses here as uh, the, the slow off season develops. We'll see how quickly things change over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I am going to be on vacation for a period next week. So my co-host Chris Cotillo will be back in this chair, but we will have three podcast for you uh next week in the meantime i want to thank lauren for her help and contributions and of course to all the uh subscribers to the insider text program who supplied us with a bunch of good questions today we'll do it again soon i'm sure chris will have a mailbag edition uh soon as well in the meantime, since I won't see you until after, I hope everyone has a terrific Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and holiday season. And Chris will be back with you next week. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And we'll do it again soon. Thanks. I want to thank Lauren Campbell for her great help in going through the mailbag questions with us on today's episode. 
Those questions came from our insider text program. You know about it by now. You know that it allows you to send us questions and comments and for us to respond directly to you. By us, I mean me, Chris Cotillo, and Chris Smith. All you have to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257, then click on the link to subscribe. It's free for a 14-day trial period. We think you're going to like it so much, you're going to want to stay involved and participate and be able to ask questions that appear on this podcast. It's just $4.99 a month after the 14-day free trial period. So join us and take part. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.